Hello and welcome to 2022 and season three of the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, welcome back. If you're new to the show, I'm your host Fiona. My passion for sport really started when I was a competitive swimmer. This led me to study sport development at university whilst also working within the sporting industry. I'm a huge believer in sport being used as a tool for good. Each week, I'll bring you an episode with someone involved in the sporting world. It could be your local high school teacher or your childhood or current sporting hero. The difference is that it's not your typical type of questions. We talk about the highs and lows in their journey through sport, but also what they've learned from it and how it's made them who they are today. There's also a strong focus on how being involved in sport can impact the community. If you haven't already, make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening so you don't miss the drop of each new episode. If you're after some bonus content, then you can check out our Instagram or Facebook page at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. Let's introduce the first guest for 2022, two-time Paralympian Hannah Dodd. Hannah has represented Australia in not one but two sports, equestrian and wheelchair basketball. Not only has Hannah competed at the highest level in what I'd call polar opposite sports, but she's done it with a positive attitude. Hannah mentioned something we haven't heard before on the podcast when it comes to resilience, so keep your ears open for that part of our chat. That's enough for me. Let's get into it. So Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about your sport? I know you've got two main ones, but we'll start with the equestrian. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got into it? Uh, yeah, I grew up on a horse property. My two older brothers and my mum were horse riders, so it was kind of just natural for me to follow along. Uh, obviously, like as a kid, I was pretty sick um, in sort of the first two years of my life, and my parents found that that was kind of where I brightened up and sort of laughed and giggled the most, so horse riding stayed uh, despite my doctor's <laughs> objections to it. Um, and yeah, I learned to horse ride before I learned to walk, basically. I was having pony rides with my brothers from four months old and I learned to ride by myself by the time I was two. Oh my gosh that's incredible <laughs> I like and horses are such beautiful healing animals I know they talk about like is it equestrian therapy it's some kind of therapy. therapy. Yes. yes. <laughs> In saying that though I did do a horse ride about this time last year and like just a little tri ride and I ended up in tears because my horse bolted off and I think it picked up that I was nervous and it got nervous too. So being able to, you know, be on a, an animal and be able to turn that into a sport, was that interesting for you? Uh, I think for me, like, it was just something I grew up with. It was something that was ingrained um, and I always felt much more comfortable in a saddle than I ever did on my own two feet for obvious <laughs> reasons. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was just part of my life growing up. You know, we got up, we did the horses, we went to school, we came home, we did the horses. <laughs> my weekends were spent either away camping for horse shows or competing locally for phone club and things like that. And, yeah, I just, it was something that I loved because I loved the sport um, and then, when I got a bit older, I loved it because no one could tell I had a disability when I was riding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was always one of those fun things that if, you know, people didn't know me, they didn't know that I was disabled. It wasn't until they'd see me later and I'd be like either on my crutches or I'd just be walking wonky, which is my general state of walking. <laughs> and they're like, oh, did you have an accident? You're like, no, this is just how I <laughs> always am. And so that part was always really like that part as a teenager um, was was really nice to just be like yeah I'm normal you can't tell the difference when I'm in a saddle but yeah 
that would be really freeing. It would be, you know, really empowering to, I guess, like have that self-confidence. Yeah, exactly. And particularly, you know, teenage years are always pretty, pretty terrible when it comes to those sort of body image and um, self-confidence and things like that. So horses was always something that I had to fall back on that I knew I was good at and no one could really pick me from the lineup as someone who had a disability. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And you actually started like competing at the top level quite young. I have in my notes, (laughs) you were 12. Is that right? I was classified at 12. So 12 is the minimum age for power equestrian that you can be classified. Um, I didn't actually do my first competition until later in that year, um, which was that I had turned 13 by then. Um, So yeah, I did my first dates and nationals at 13. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So what was it like kind of competing at, you know, the national level at 13? Because a 13-year-old brain works a little bit differently to, you know, a fully-fledged adult brain. I'll be honest, I don't think it ever really occurred to me as a teenager how um, absolutely insane it was that I was competing against people that were sometimes double my age. Um, It probably kicked in a little bit in the next year when I got added to the Australian squads and did my first international. We were in the UK for three weeks and only one of the competitions was like a junior under 25 competition. I was literally, you know, the youngest there by. The next person up was my teammate um, in the adults team who is another um, really amazing para-athlete, Kate Doherty, now Ness. Um, So she did a question as well and then switched to para-triathlon for Rio um, and just retired recently to to have more time being a mum, which is pretty cool. So she was the next one up and I think she, or I'm going to be wrong on the dates here, but I think she's about six to eight years older than me. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was like the next, (laughs) next stage up. But yeah, it didn't ever really occur to me at 13, 14, how absolutely insane it was that I was competing against 20 plus people. Yeah. <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh yeah, cool. And I think one of my things as a horse rider was didn't really matter where I was competing in the world um, or, you know, at home as well. It was the same arena, the same letters, the same test, like everything was the same um, as what I would train at home. So that was kind of always the mentality I had, which I think helped a lot <laughs> with, the, with not realizing the enormity of some of the situations that I was in. Thankfully, I had my mum to be the nervous wreck for me. Um, <laughs> and Shout then out to the parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, looking back on it, you know, when I got to, you know, 19, 20, I was like, oh, geez, like, I really probably should have been a little more stressed than I was. But at the time, yeah, it was, you know, an amazed 13-year-old was like, cool, great. This is amazing. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's so good. So I guess the best way to break this interview intersections is, to go through like equestrian journey and then take us through as to how you evolved into wheelchair basketball. So you competed at the 2012 Paralympics and you placed just outside of the top 10. And as you mentioned before, you were the youngest on the team by, you know, potentially a little bit. How, like, how was that experience? Did you ever dream of going to the Paralympics? Yeah, look, the Paralympics had always had always been on the cards for me. Um, I was really lucky. So obviously um, experienced Sydney 2000 as an eight-year-old and I was extremely lucky to meet one of the equestrian team members, Julie Higgins, um, right before the Games in her farm in Windsor. And then I got to watch her win her double gold at Horsley Park and yeah, driving out of out of there, I was like, this is what I want to do. And being an eight-year-old, my mom just kind of laughed at me and was like, yeah, sure, no worries, you can do that if you want. So yeah, it had always been something that I'd wanted to do um, since a very young age and missed out on 2008 because of equine flu, because that wiped out the last qualifier. You have to be in the year of your 16th birthday for equestrian to qualify. 
um, and the last qualifier was supposed to be January 08 and equine flu came through the back end of 2007 and all the competitions got shut down. Um, so I did miss out on that. I missed out on 2010 Worlds um, by a couple of places. I think I was like fourth reserve sort of in the mm -hmm. rankings. Um, so yeah, getting to, to London was, you know, it was a dream come true. Uh, obviously the results didn't go my way as much as I would have liked it. It was one of those things where it was both a dream and a nightmare. Um, my horse got sick on the way over. I got sick two days before the opening ceremony and actually ended up in hospital on IV drips. Oh my gosh. Um, and pretty much every sort of 48 hours, I popped up a new bug in London and was just constantly changing medications and antibiotics and things like that, just trying to keep me ticking over, um, which accumulated, I think the day after the closing ceremony, we were about to go home, I woke up with conjunctivitis. Like <laughs> my, my immune system basically just gave me the middle finger and was like, we're not doing this. No more. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> they're like, take me home. So the fact that we got there and that we competed was obviously, it was, you know, bucket list ticked off. Um, but the fact that we were so close to having a medal, like the scores were that tight. I think the bronze medal was 2% more than me. Um, so it was really tight scoring. So to know that I hadn't done my best and what we were capable of was definitely disappointing at the same time. So it did, did leave a little, little bit of a bitter taste in my very competitive mouth. But, you know, it was a once in a lifetime experience as, as weird as that is having done our second games. But yeah, it was definitely one of those things where I was like, yes, I've done it. I'm here. I had, you know, the Australian flag on my chest. Um, and all those sorts of things. So yeah, it was definitely a dream come true in in nightmare circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't turn you off, you know, representing Australia again, but how did that transition happen between, I guess, a solo sport, although your horse is your teammate, but you know, it's considered a solo sport and then transitioning over to wheelchair basketball, like where, where did that happen? <laughs> Uh, every time I tell this story, it sounds like a really bad, like B-grade daytime drama sort of storyline. Um, but long story short, I was basically recruited uh, by my parents in a casino during the uh, opening ceremony of London 20 2012 um, by uh, Jerry Houston, who was a former Australian coach at the time. And when I came home from London, because I didn't own the horse that I took, I didn't have a horse to ride and suddenly had a lot of spare time on my hands and decided, you know, for a bit of shits and giggles, I would go play wheelchair basketball for some fun. And I ended up being recruited into the Women's National League six, roughly six months later and went from there. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible. And was it the team environment that, you know, you thrived under in terms of the wheelchair basketball? Because it's, I look at the two sports and they're completely polar opposites in my brain. <laughs> so like, I can't even draw similarities between them. So like, what drew no, you to that? Very different. <laughs> um, look, I think it was just, it was a new challenge and I had never played really a team sport growing up because they just, I never knew I was eligible for a lot of the para sports, which seems a bit silly, but I just didn't know that I was like when I was recruited across to wheelchair basketball I was still walking probably 85% of the time so I just it never kind of crossed my mind that I was eligible to play wheelchair sport um yeah and I think I did enjoy having the team environment and the girls that I got recruited by and that I trained with are lovely really lovely human beings and it's one of the reasons that I still play for my Sydney team even though I've lived in Queensland for four years um just because they are family and they're great fun to be around and I um, they were amazing players as well we had you know two or three Paralympians and things like that who were really good teachers and just yeah really nice people um so it was definitely a very hard switch mentally as you said they're very polar opposite sports and I was used to being sort of very insular and very 
in my own routine and take care of myself and that sort of thing. So the switch to team mentality was definitely very hard and it's still something that I've struggled with a little bit because I had 20 years of being an individual athlete um, and I'm coming up to 10 being a team athlete now. Um, so yeah, it was definitely very hard to to make the transition mentally more than anything. And obviously skill-wise as well, We I went from sort of a very muscular endurance sport and postural sport to something that's very fast paced and very sort of power and agility based. So my brain took a little bit of catching up on the coordination side of things. Um, I'm not I'm not someone who's naturally athletic. Unfortunately, those genes all went to my brothers um, who can kind of pick up whatever sport they want in 10, 20 minutes. And I'm the one that's like still smashing a ball in my face sort of thing. <laughs> so it was, yeah, I think the fact that I have good work ethic and I had that from the horses was one of the things that did allow me to transition very easily. And the fact that I am very stubborn about learning things <laughs> definitely helped as well. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a hard transition. I ran into a lot of walls and into a lot of other people <laughs> while learning. Um, but yeah, I had really good teachers, which made life a lot easier as well. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that it was actually a harder transition mentally. And that, I guess, brings us to one of the questions is like, what has sport brought you that's transferred over to other avenues of your life? And, you know, you just mentioned that you were able to like mentally make that switch. And it was probably like a change of mindset that helped transition you over so has that like transferred over to other things that you do outside of the sporting context um I think definitely as I said like the thing that kind of gets me by as an athlete um is my work ethic um and that certainly transfers well over to school and and education and the workplace as well I think as being an athlete you're always very time poor so it's taught me a a lot of time management skills which I'm not particularly good at as a person so (laughs) that's definitely been something prioritizing in time management that's definitely come over from from sport into today day-to-day life which makes life a lot easier (laughs) Um, but yeah I think just the fact that I can be organized and I can work hard towards whatever goal kind of put in front of me definitely definitely transfers well over to education and workforce yeah yeah I love that and it's not you know the physical thing that sport gave you it's that capacity to have those I guess life skills and you kind of learnt them in the sporting context but they've you know helped you develop and thrive as a person which is really something special yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) so was there like a specific moment I'm gonna go on back a little bit was there a specific moment that you kind of thought wheelchair basketball for me like you've been doing it for a decade now like what was it that we were like yes this is what I want to do. This is, you know, I, I want to represent Australia in this sport. I think to be honest, it was a bit of a, a trade-off. I did, was a dual sport athlete between 2013 to 2017. I did both sports at the same time. And it was obviously very difficult because um, I was playing, you know, men's league, women's league, and then all my horse competitions on top of that. So, you know, for the whole year, I'd maybe have two weekends off and it was just very full on mm. um, and at that time my peripheral neuropathy was going through quite a um, decline period so I was losing a lot of function I was losing a lot of um, ability and things like that um, and it was becoming harder and harder to to ride at the level that I wanted to ride at so that was part of the transition um, to going away from paraquestrian into wheelchair basketball um, probably the other part was that Rio cycle um, where obviously the gliders, the wheelchair basketball didn't qualify for the first time in our program's history. Um, and I had kind of just come off under 25 world championships where we won a silver medal the year before. 
Um, and obviously a lot of the senior girls suddenly took time off or retired um, after we didn't qualify for Rio. So then it was kind of a thing where I kind of got dragged up a little bit into the senior levels. We did a bit of trial by fire for a, for a lot of the under 25 girls. And yeah, I think that was kind of part of it where I went, oh, I can I can match it with with the girls that are here if I work at it. And that was kind of what started the transition fully over to to wheelchair basketball and then obviously when I moved states the the logistics of having a horse away from home was just not something that was realistic for the fact that I relied on my mum to help me feed and rug and tuck up and get on and off and Mm. things like that so um, the fact that I was moving by myself to a state that I didn't have any connections in kind of solidified the fact that I had to retire from (laughs) retire from horses um, and start obviously going wheelchair basketball a little more competitively um, and as my main sport. It wasn't really an executive decision to choose one over the other. It was just kind of how life happened <laughs> and go, going with the flow a little bit and taking the opportunities that were presented to me when they when they were given. Yeah, and that's I guess that's the thing about uh, like it's sport, but as well in a broader context, life is like you just kind of have to roll with the punches and make do with what's been thrown at you do you still get to ride at all every now and again um when I go home to Sydney my parents still are just horses um so if I have the time while I'm at home I will I will jump on one or two of them um we have a very nice uh client who has a lovely Clydesdale cross called Batman um (laughs) that I I jump on fairly regularly when I get the chance he's a pretty cool dude He's obviously quite big, but he's pretty quiet and pretty docile, so I feel pretty safe on him. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, it's good that you, you know, haven't had to say goodbye to that part of you, you know, that part of you <laughs> completely. Yeah, it's, it's nice, but I do miss the companionship, that's for sure, um, and the relationship you have with them. But I, funnily enough, don't, don't miss competing that much. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? When I stopped competitive swimming, I actually, like, I missed the feeling of, like, being in the water and the seclusion but I haven't missed competing whatsoever. It's funny, you don't miss the competitive side of it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I definitely miss, you know, living on a farm and things like that. And it was one of the things that did terrify me the most with moving states was going from living on property all my life to suburbia and units and things like that. So it was definitely a rough transition period for the first couple of months. Yeah, I could imagine. Speaking of, like, that's a huge, I guess that's a significant milestone because it changed the course of where you were going in terms of, like, your sporting journey. But has there been any other big milestones or, you know, significant moments along your journey that, you know, have helped shape who you are? Um, I think kind of it's hard with being an athlete because obviously, like, there's really big highs, there's really big lows. Um, I think obviously missing out on Beijing and then 2010 Worlds um, and then making making London, but then missing out on the following worlds for both basketball and equestrian. I was reserved for both of them. <laughs> was definitely like it was a hard pill to swallow. And then again with Rio, two years later, we missed out for basketball. And then I tried to go back and qualify in horses and missed out again due to health. So it was definitely one of those things where you kind of you have to learn to bounce back. And obviously those sort of things do shape who you are as a person, but. I think thankfully, like due to how I was raised and how I was brought up, I have a fairly positive disposition. So we have what we call the pity party, which is usually involves, you know, chocolate and bad <laughs> movies. And then for 24 hours and after that, where we kick, kick on and get back to work. So very lucky that that's kind of my default <laughs> default setting where I can just, yeah, kick back on and be be resilient. 
but yeah, I think the fact that, you know, I have been lucky enough to, to do two sports and do them successfully um, has definitely shaped me as a person and kind of taught me, particularly because basketball was not a sport I ever saw myself playing. You know, I'm five foot two. <laughs> I was definitely, definitely not in my cards, um, even when I was upright and walking. So I think, yeah, the fact that I managed to, to get into a sport and do it well, uh, something that I had literally never touched before the age of 20. Um, certainly gave me a lot of confidence um, and certainly built some self-esteem that I probably didn't have after after the rough t- teenage years. Um, so I think that was probably one thing that definitely did help was being able to master something that I'd never had an interest in or done before. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And the idea of pity party, because, you know, we all talk about resilience and bouncing back, but I think one thing that's missed in that step is you have to feel your feelings and you have to like acknowledge <laughs> how you're feeling. Otherwise, what are you bouncing back from? Because you don't know. So yeah, that, that's a great idea. Where did that come from? Was that something your parents like instilled in you? Um, I think, yeah, like obviously I had a lot of surgeries when I was a kid. Um, I had multiple surgeries done on my club foot to, to correct it. I spent a lot of time in and out of hospital. I missed a lot of social stuff growing up because I was in and out of hospital. <laughs> Um, and also just because I was an athlete at a young age, like a lot of the times when friends were having birthday parties and stuff on the weekend, I was out competing. Um, so I did miss a lot of that. And yeah, that kind of thing and getting obviously bad news from surgeons and doctors was definitely sort of one of the things where like, yep, yeah, cool, we'll grab something on the way home, we'll have a little little thing and then tomorrow we'll get up and do it again. And then particularly when I developed my peripheral neuropathy, I didn't get diagnosed for 10 years. So I had an undiagnosed neurological problem and I kept going to neurologists and they kept basically telling me it was all in my head, which was great fun. Cause I'm like, I'm 22 years old and I cannot tie my own shoelaces. Like <laughs> there is obviously something very wrong. Mm. Um, and I've had never previously had neurological problems with my hands. So that was probably where it became a bit more important. Cause you know, as I said, it's an hour and a half drive from my hospital um, in Sydney. So you had an hour and a half of Sydney traffic to <laughs> to go home and cry in um and it was that thing where we're like right cool we'd grab like some chocolate or like a fancy something from the cafe <laughs> um hospital cafe and we'd chuck on whatever music we had in the car and have a karaoke party while we stuffed our face with something horrendous um <laughs> and we do the same when we got home you know we'd have a little bit of pity party put a <laughs> put a movie on curl up on the couch and then yeah once we woke up the next morning we're like all right don't have answers don't have anything but we've got to keep going so yeah it is one of those things like and as you said I think it's a really important Mm. step that people miss in the resilience talk (laughs) Um, which is yeah you can't just be like oh yeah I'm fine and move on Mm -hmm. that's not how it works (laughs) and I love that you've brought it up because in like I don't know I think there's been like 40 something guests and there's been a few that mentioned resilience but no one talks about like that that yucky heartbreaking sinking feeling (laughs) and and then when you go through something hard, you feel that feeling and you're like, well, other people don't feel that. And so the fact yeah. that you've brought it up and you like have acknowledged that, yes, like people do go through really hard times and it's okay to feel that feeling and then you can get over it and yeah, and, and move on and, you know, put the next step forward or so, yeah, I, I love that you've brought that up. I, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> And I think like, particularly like when I talk with kids, it's like that scale as well. Like something that's an eight out of 10 bad day for me might not be an eight out of 10 bad day for you, but something that's an eight out of 10 for you might be a two for me and vice versa. Like it's all about context and where you are in in your day. It doesn't make your out of 10 any worse. Like it's still eight out of 10 for you and it's still eight out of 10 for me. It's just how your sphere kind of recognizes it. 
Um, so that's also like really important because eight out of ten sucky days suck regardless of what they are. <laughs> and if you're anything like me, if it can get you, you know, say on a Monday you're an eight out of ten for one issue, but if it hit you on the Friday, you'd be fine. <laughs> It'd be a two yeah. out of ten. <laughs> yeah definitely you're like I got the weekend to deal with this yes oh I love that well you've just gave us a really great lesson but is there a lesson that you've learned along the way that you want to share I think probably it's just yeah keep going like I think particularly the last 12 months and the last 18 months have definitely showed us that you know things can definitely get a whole lot worse before Mm -hmm. they get a lot better and sometimes they don't get better and you just have to learn to live with it so I think that's definitely been a fun, a fun life practice for the, for the last two years. But yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing is a lot of the times, particularly as someone who has a disability, um, obviously some days are, are a lot harder than others. And particularly even when it comes to opportunities to compete and things like that, they're a lot more limited than what they are for an able-bodied person. So yeah, I think take whatever opportunity comes your way, whether it's small, big or in the middle, um, throw yourself into it, have fun with it don't be afraid of it. I know that was something that particularly, <laughs> particularly in my mid-teens, I definitely backed away from some opportunities that I shouldn't have just because I was afraid they were going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm hit sort of my, probably like my mid-20s when I was just like, screw it, let's do it. Have fun. If it blows up in my face, blows up in my face <laughs> and we'll go back to square one regardless. Um, so I think that's the thing, like don't be afraid of going back to square one, but also don't be afraid of jumping in the deep end because both both are, are good in the right situation. Yeah, I like that. And I guess, you know, the worst thing, like you mentioned before, like the worst thing that can happen is you go back to square one and it's actually not that square one. It's like square one and a half because you've grown yeah. from it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Every, every mistake has a learning lesson and every success has a learning lesson as well. So I think that's kind of one of the fun things, particularly like obviously with basketball, like I'm still trying to upskill 10 years into the sport. And sometimes, yeah, I thankfully have a coach who's very good at frustrating the hell out of me when it comes to those sort of things. Um, but, you know, it is when I start learning a new skill, it's frustrating and it's hard and you mess it up a million times and occasionally I throw the ball at a wall out of frustration but you know I look back in six months time and go oh I can actually do this reasonably easily now so it is one of those things that yeah every failure has a lesson and every success has a lesson as well yeah I love that and it's a good thing to remember like when you are in that pit of feeling like you're failing at something is like okay what am I going to learn from this and it might you might not know until six months later which is exactly right like you might not actually recognize it but yeah, it's a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely times when you feel like you're just hitting a brick wall repeatedly. <laughs> but that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, eventually the walls break. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> or you can find your way around it. <laughs> yeah. So a big part of this podcast is uh, talking about like what sport can do for the community. So did you do your undergrad in sport and exercise science before you moved on to... Or am I, have yeah. I got that information wrong? <laughs> no, that's correct. Yeah, so I have a sport and exercise science degree from Western Sydney. Um, and then I moved to the Sunshine Coast to do another health science degree, but in um, prosthetics and orthotics. Yes. Yeah, cool. So was that because of your, like, your own experience? And are you like going into kind of like the sporting side of that? Because you've got your sport and exercise science background? 
to be honest, I've always wanted to be in PO. Obviously, growing up as an orthotic user, I was pretty much my orthotist's worst nightmare because I'd snap my leg braces every six to eight weeks because I was an active farm kid and we were running around doing things that my leg braces were not, <laughs> not made to do. So they, I had a hate-love hate, relationship with my orthotist. And so, yeah, I think that was kind of what started it was to have an end user being a practitioner. And it's actually become a lot more common particularly in P&O in the last few years. We have at least probably two dozen practitioners now that are either prosthetic wearers or are orthotic wearers, which I think is really cool because not only can you sort of describe what it's going to feel like and how it's going to move, but you also have a feeling of when something's wrong. Hmm. Um, and you can kind of tell because you recognize the same symptoms in yourself, which is really fun. I would really love to get into the sports side of it. Um, I had a little bit of a dip in it in the last 18 months um, making my own knee case for my basketball chair which was cool I got it approved about two months before Tokyo so it was definitely definitely a bit of a stress to get it finished but yeah I got really lucky in the fact that USC up here helped me start that process and then Parliament Australia stepped in and helped me complete it and have a finished product for Tokyo through their engineering department as well as their contacts outside so I was really lucky that the guys here in Brisbane at Leading Edge kind of did the finished carbon fiber for me because that's definitely not something that I had the tools to do previously all my prototypes were um, like polypropylene and things like that so really flexi plastic um, (laughs) which worked when you were chopping it and remelting it every couple of weeks to to figure it out but yeah I would love to be involved in that that sphere but my actual main interest is pediatrics and helping kids out um, I love that yeah, that's where I started and that's kind of where I want to go back to. <laughs> Kids are so much joy as well. Like I work with them and it's, yeah, they just bring so much joy. <laughs> yeah, and I think that back now that like you can get a bit more personal with your um, with your braces. Like when I was growing up, they were just plain boring white and probably once I hit like my mid to late teens, they started bringing some patterns in and things like that. Whereas now quite a few of the companies will um, hydro dip them with whatever you want to have on them and things like that. And there's like vinyl wraps and there's all sorts of, of fun and interesting ways for kids to personalize it, which it it's a double win because it's obviously more aesthetically nice to look at, but it also means that they're going to wear it more often yeah. so you don't have to drag a kicking, screaming six-year-old into their braces every morning. Yeah, they want to put definitely it on. A problem. Yeah. yeah, which I know distinctly from my childhood, I was not someone who liked wearing my face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was definitely one of the ones that my mom's like, put it on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I don't need it. <laughs> I like that you've, you know, gone into that space and you want to make a difference to, to, you know, the kids and potentially sporting, but more so like just kids because of your own experience. Now, yeah. <laughs> we spoke a little bit about it before we started recording about your part of the movement away from classifying like para-athletes as inspirational. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you could probably explain it better than I can. Um, yeah, I think it's been it's been a really good shift, um, particularly sort of London was the start of the shift where the London Olympic and Paralympic committees did a really good job of advertising and promoting the Paralympics at the same level they promoted the Olympics. Um, and I think that's kind of carried through. And I think as, as bad as COVID has been, 
it's been one of those things that mainstream media did have to pick us up a bit more this year for for the Paralympics and they did have to promote us a bit more because no one could be there to watch us Mm -hmm. Um, but I think yeah it's been a very interesting shift away from oh they're so great for you know doing their sport and that sort of thing and now it's like oh these people are athletes who train you know 40 to 50 hours a week and things like that so it's been a really nice shift and it's been really nice to live through that (laughs) and even like just particularly looking back on like newspaper articles and things like that from my childhood compared to the ones that were written in Tokyo the childhood ones are a little cringy mm-hmm. <laughs> um and in just the change in in um language between like wheelchair bound and suffers from and things like that to you know has and wheelchair user and those sort of things and they're not a big shift but they're really important shifts to have so I think that's been really nice and the fact that it's not just oh yeah they're great for for doing sport and it's one of those things like I have no issues with being called inspirational if you're calling me inspirational for the right reasons if you're calling me inspirational for going to get my groceries, I'm probably going to tell you to get lost. <laughs> mm. Yeah. If you're calling me inspirational because you admire the fact that I work my butt off for, you know, 16 to 18 hours a week, then yeah, no worries. Yeah, I love that. And I also think like you're all athletes and I like admire because you'd probably know of Ali Cole. I used to train with her yep. back in the day before <laughs> I think, oh gosh, somewhere between 2008 and 2012, I think. And like the effort she put in, she was just a hard worker. And that's why she was inspirational to our team. She was a hard worker, one of the senior swimmers. And it wasn't at all the the disability that she had. It was the fact that she was a hard worker. She'd rock up to training. She'd do her pre-training routines. And like, that's the respect that, you know, you athletes deserve is for what you're, you know, putting in. I think it's also the recognition that like, yes, we have other stuff to overcome before we ever make it onto a sporting field but so do a lot of able-bodied athletes like there's family problems there's health problems there's injury problems like it's the same thing that every athlete faces regardless of whether they have a disability or not yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day like we're all human and so whether you're (laughs) whether you're you know a a top level world champion competitor or yeah you know joe blow who plays footy at his local footy club like we're all going like going through something to get to the competition or to get to the game and I think like that's the cool thing about sport is we're starting to not discriminate between the two and acknowledge like the same lessons that you have gone through and you know the lessons that you've learned is actually going to be the same as maybe your local PT like you just (laughs) you just don't know yeah that's exactly it so I think the fact that people are starting to see the athlete before they see the disability is definitely definitely a turn in the right direction still a long way to go but we're getting there yeah yeah <laughs> and I think we've started and that's the hardest part that's the thing and like you like you said like the the mood is shifting and you've been able to see the evolution of it and you know people were talking a little bit before about Carol Cook and like humans like Carol Cook who are doing incredible things like in terms of like the MS Mega Swim and you know things like that like that is inspirational and it's nothing to do even with her disability like yes it's the charity that helps that but it's the fact that she created that movement to help other people and like I love that to the core (laughs) yeah it's definitely Carol is an amazing human being but I think it was cool like even we were going through quarantine and we had like obviously zoom meetings and things like that and the fact that more people are engaging with us as well in mainstream media so I think they said from Rio, the viewership was up 300%. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of also been the cool switch. And part of the fact that they're now treating us more as athletes, then that inspiration is that more people can get into it because it's more easily accessible to them. 
and it's much more interesting to them rather than being as horrible as you say, but quote, quote um, mm. sub story sort mm. of thing. And Stella Young always said it beautifully, inspirational porn. Like mm. <laughs> you don't you don't need that anymore. It's just the fact that it's a pure athletic things and they're, you know, looking at some of the times the sprinters or swimmers are doing and they're like, I can't do that. And mm-hmm. I have two legs or, you know. Um, so I think that's been, it's been fun to to see the rest of the able-bodied population sort of come to the realisation that, yeah, we are, we are full-time athletes for a lot of us and, and part-time schedulings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And speaking of, like we've just touched on the evolution, but where do you see the future of sport? I know I read something somewhere today about, wheelchair basketball for 2024 so for Paris they've kind of cut the amount of teams is that what's happened there <laughs> that is uh an ongoing political pissing contest mm-hmm. um, between our international body IWBF and the IPC um, which started back in 2015 and came to a head uh beginning of 2020 uh, basically IPC usually every cycle um, changes the classification per- code or updates it and IWF basically said we think our classification code is better and more inclusive um, and didn't adopt it and IPC then took us out of Tokyo and said until you comply you're not getting anything um, and there was a lot of public statements that were very cutting mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was very frustrating and it was very disheartening because you know part of the Paralympic movement is inclusiveness that's like one of the main pillars and to see um particularly for us we lost two of our main players to reclassification and they're two girls that were able-bodied basketballers and lost their able-bodied careers due to injuries and they can't run they can't jump they can't pivot and then started wheelchair basketball were really successful and then got told that they're not disabled enough to play wheelchair basketball when girls with very similar injuries just different paperwork got through and so that was definitely part of it and you know one of the GB men who's a world champion because his underlying condition is complex regional pain he's no longer eligible even though he has other because of his complex regional pain he is classifiable under lack of range of motion but because that's his underlying condition he's not allowed so it was a really big back and forth missing contest between the two of them trying to prove who was right and yeah we only got reinstated I think August 2020 fully oh, wow um yeah, so it was because everything got delayed. Um, so we all had to go through, we had to resubmit our paperwork to prove that we had a minimal eligible impairment and things like that. We're still under review. So the next international competition I go to, I have to be fully classified from start to finish again. And that will be the same for every international wheelchair basketballer, which is insane, but that's how it works. It works out to be 72 athletes that missed out on a thing. And it, the wording around it is that they wanted to bring in more high needs sports Sports, and categories but speaking to some of my friends in athletics who are in those categories and who were promised spots for Paris they still don't have those spots Mm. um so it's one of those hard things um they brought in more for boccia taekwondo and paratriathlon which is cool and it's awesome but yeah we went from 12 teams in the men and 10 teams in the women to six aside so basically once you take out the hosts and Africa obviously gets a spot you then only have six spots left for the rest of the world Um, which makes it very tight (laughs) yeah oh it's why can't you just have like a team per country like that that would be yeah it's one of those things and their justification behind it is to bring the level of competition up Mm -hmm. um, and make it higher Um, but the reality is you know you're always going to have developing nations that make it through because it's their area of the world and they're 
always going to be at a disadvantage to, you know, particularly the top European and American teams who are, you know, they've been on top for the last 40 decades, for, yeah. you know, four decades since the sports originated, they've been there. So it's always going to be a catch-up game for them. So, yeah, I think it is disappointing. And I think particularly in the fact that it's one of the most recognisable sports and it's one of the most popular sports to have our quota cut down was obviously disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it obviously ratchets the stress up a little bit more um, to, to qualify and be in a good position before you get to qualifiers, um, having realistically only one spot on the line for your zone. Mm, but, yeah, that's it sounds stressful. And it, like you said, like it, it doesn't really match that whole pillar of inclusivity (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a very frustrating one because it's one of those things where you know someone who does have complex regional pain or Ellis Downer syndrome which is a connective tissue disorder aren't eligible Mm. but I know people who live with both of those conditions who are full-time wheelchair users because they physically cannot get around and function without a chair but they're not eligible to play para sport Mm. at anything other than a local or social level so it is, it's a frustrating thing, but it's one of those, it's a very subjective <laughs> and it's part of being disability. We're a giant gray area mm-hmm. when it comes to the the sliding scale of function and, <laughs> and impact and things like that. So I do understand that they're also a rock and a hard place, but it's still not any more fun as an athlete. You know, I, and I feel a lot for the athletes because I've, I've been in that position. I started to play wheelchair rugby for a bit of fun and went to get classified because I am a quadriplegic I'm incomplete but I'm a quadriplegic but because I don't fit into the three categories that are in quad rugby classification I I'm eligible but I'm not classifiable Mm. so So is that something (laughs) is that something like it's an international classification system or is it an Australian classification system it's international but every sport has its own classification code yeah um so, and then all of those codes have to be in compliance with the International Paralympic Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of hoops and red tape to jump through. <laughs> it doesn't really, like you want it to be easy and accessible to people so they can get involved in the sport. So just yeah. in my head, I'm just trying to like think of how, how, the, how they're going to make this work. But hopefully in the future, like obviously it's a gray area now, but I'm hoping, gosh, maybe I need to go work for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe, you know, there can be a redefinition of boundaries and go, okay, so this is where this fits, this is where this fits and open it up so that more people can participate because that's what all, that's my whole ethical thing is I just want people yeah. to participate in it. I think probably the most frustrating thing for us as wheelchair basketball is particularly when it comes to minimum impairment is basically once all your minimally impaired athletes are in a wheelchair, like it doesn't really matter. Mm their points classification they're all four fives like they've all got the same trunk rotation stretch like that's for for wheelchair basketball most of our stuff is done on our trunk function so whether you can sit up independently whether you can move side to side whether you can rotate your chest um which obviously is a one I cannot do um (laughs) but I probably without my hand impairment would probably be a two or a two five which is where I started but it's just the fact that my hands ate dirt and are no longer functional that I got down class Um, because I do still have some of my trunk but not all of it Mm -hmm. Um, but it is that thing as a minimal thing like they all can sit up they can all twist they can all tilt like it was that was probably the biggest sticking point and the biggest gripe in the wheelchair basketball community was that once they're strapped in and they're in a chair like it's the same as putting you in a chair like Mm -hmm. you'd have the same function it doesn't really matter that much and it doesn't impact our game that much it's only when you get into the lower levels that the classification really plays 
that big of a deal. Um, and it was, again, that was kind of one of the big gripes from IWF was like, our, our thing is you have to have a 10% disability that stops you playing an able-bodied sport, which most of the four fives, they can't run, they can't pivot, they can't jump. So they meet that classification of 10% loss of function, but it just wasn't enough for IPC. Oh, that's so, incredibly frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of, that was the biggest gripe in the wheelchair basketball community when it all happened was mm-hmm. the fact that mo- a lot of our teammates um, and friends from around the world that were getting kicked out, they don't have an opportunity to play another sport. That's and them. while they can still play here locally in Australia, in our national leagues and our state comps and things like that, they lost an opportunity to compete for their country over a, realistically a technicality. Mm, like a bit of paperwork a tick in a box really <laughs> yeah. yeah and it was it was one of those things like they were trying to get assessed right at the height of COVID like it was sort of February to April 2020 like you couldn't get in to see a doctor let alone a specialist so they were they were kind of short end of the stick on both ends um which was very frustrating and it was really heartbreaking to lose them because particularly for us like those two girls helped us qualify like they were out they were our starting high pointers yeah. most games. And then, you know, comes the legitimacy. Would we have qualified without them? You know, did we then not deserve our place at Tokyo and things like that? So it's very hard. And the fact that some sports got clemency and could compete through to Tokyo and then be transitioned out and vice versa. So it was definitely, it was definitely a rough 18 months um, going through that whole process, both personally and as a team member. But mm. the joys of higher ups making decisions that you have to live with. <laughs> Well, I think it just shows, and a lot of people, you know, you'll sit down and you'll watch watch the games and you're like, okay, like, cool, this is awesome. But you don't actually understand the little nitty gritty paperwork that needs to be submitted or the little policies that you have to meet and the fact that that can be changing every few years or like you said, every cycle, like you don't actually understand the logistics behind it. And I think that's what makes elite sport a bit more complicated like it, it's it is a business as well as an entertainment like it's a really complex space <laughs> and you know it's exercise and health but it's also like a business and ent- entertainment it's it's just like all three pillars and balancing the needs of the three things like I think that's the, the thing that you're talking about is like from yeah. your point of view incredibly frustrating like it doesn't seem at all fair and it doesn't even seem like it matches the the pillars of what it's about but at the same time, like you can see kind of how they had to make a decision, but also like, it's just, yeah, it's just like balancing the three different areas <laughs> of it and go, okay, so what's more important this time around and how, how yeah, are we going to do much. it? Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be fun to see how things play out after Paris and heading into LA and then obviously again, heading into Brisbane and our home games how everything goes and <laughs> whether the dust settles and they let us come back in larger numbers. Cause yeah, like it is one of the biggest Paralympic sports around the world. Yeah. Um, and it's only growing um, particularly now that we are into Africa and a lot of the like B group for Europe are starting to come along quite strongly now. And we're getting people in like Indonesia and those smaller like Southeast Asian countries as well that are adjoining. So like for our Paralympic qualifiers for the first time in the women's comp, we had more than four teams. Mm. We had, I think, nine from memory. It was a couple of years ago now, but <laughs> um, I think, yeah, we had nine teams with like, you know, India, Thailand, Philippines, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, 
Iran all sending teams for the first time. So the fact that it's a rapidly growing sport as well, I think they will have to increase the quota again, just not for this cycle. (laughs) Disappointing for this cycle, but I can't wait to, you know, see onwards and upwards and like even we've got a games in 2032. So let's, let's, you know, I know we're sitting at, what was it? 12, 10 and eight or 12 and 10. Let's, you know, put it up towards 20 teams. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think it's one of those things that IWF is going to is going to step up and give us more quota for our worlds and Oceania ch- and zonal champs and things like that. So there will be more opportunity for us to compete away from the Paralympics as well, which is good. And it's kind of their way of bridging the gap between the two, still allowing the countries that don't qualify now for for a Paralympics to still get international competition and the opportunity to develop so that they are ready for international competition. Um, so it should be fun it'll be good to see where the sport goes in sort of the next five to six years yeah um, developing countries coming through yeah and it's exciting because like like you said before once you're sitting in that chair and it being such a fast-growing sport like it kind of evens out a little bit with it so like it's good to see you know maybe the developing countries are going to knock knock America and Europe off the top (laughs) (laughs) like I'd love to see that well, yeah, like Tokyo was a first in both men's and women's. Japan won their first medal ever in a Paralympics in the men's. They got silver and same for China in the women's. They'd never medaled before and got a silver. So, you know, it's one of those things where the Southeast Asian countries and the African countries are coming through. And I think particularly with Commonwealth Games, with the African countries, mm-hmm. they'll get a chance to really sink their teeth into some international competition. Uh, admittedly it's three on three not five on five so it's a bit, a bit of a different ball game but it's still that chance to get that international experience and and sort of feel the vibe of the game and how how much they need to improve and that sort of thing and see some really good players from you know the UK Canada and us to to get an idea of where they're heading to oh I love that so what is next for you what's your plans I know by the time we will release this, it'll be probably end of January, but we're, we're, what's your 2022 looking like? Uh, 2022 is pretty busy um, just because we are in that short cycle. <laughs> um, we've gone from, you know, five-year cycle to a three-year cycle, so things do come up pretty quickly. Um, so for us, we have camps getting in January, uh, in February, sorry, um, national camps for three-on-three, three, and then the men have to go to qualifiers for Com Games. The women's don't because there haven't been enough nominations in our area. And then, yeah, we have another two camps in February. um, And then we have another camp in March. We go to qualifiers for Worlds um, at the end of March in Thailand. Um, And then from sort of late, early April, mid-April, we'll get into national leagues. Um, And then obviously Commonwealth Games, end of July, beginning of August. Um, And then uh, Worlds are in, I think, November. Oh, late wow. November, early December in Dubai. So it's a it's a fairly full on year. Um, and obviously, yeah, then once we get through this year, we head into Paris and it becomes <laughs> even more hectic. So, oh my but, um, gosh. yeah, yeah. once we get through the qualification stuff at the beginning of the year, we get not time off, but that's kind of the big thing to start with is qualifying for Worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll after that we'll start focusing the people who are in the three-on-three squad will start focusing towards com games um and then once we get past august we'll all come back in for five on five and focus towards worlds at the end of the year because our worlds where you finish in worlds um dictates the extra spots allocated to your zones Mm -hmm. so 
um, where either us, Japan or China finish in Worlds is really important for us to get those extra spots um, into the Asia Oceana zone for Paris. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> either one of one of the three of us has to do really well at Worlds to get an extra spot um, and finish in the top. I think now with the shortened quota, it's the top four. Okay. Well, imagine if it's all the three of you. <laughs> yeah, that would be very nice. That would be very nice. But I, do, I don't think it's going to happen, but it would be very nice. Um, would take a very big, very big stress off the shoulders for Paris and qualifying. Um, but, yeah, if we can at least get um, two spots, that, you know, makes life a lot easier. Um, again, takes a little bit of that pressure off to finish number one. But, yeah, it's just one of those things that we'll see where we are, where we're at when we get there sort of thing because, again we're not going to get to play internationally a lot <laughs> mm -hmm. no not with um, the world the way it is at the moment and with our lovely state borders we're not going to see each other much either um which was definitely a very big handicap going into Tokyo um because men's and women's the majority of our squad is based in Perth so trying to get the the poor WA guys and girls in and out was definitely like pulling teeth a lot of the time and then obviously when Sydney shut down right before the games trying to get the Sydney girls and staff out from there was was again pulling teeth so we didn't actually see the Sydney girls or staff um until we landed in Tokyo oh my god like hello <laughs> we're yeah, now in a different yeah. country hi we're one team <laughs> yeah we hadn't seen each other probably for about oh, six weeks give or take because they got sent home early from our selection camp um because of all the the COVID problems in Sydney <laughs> and then couldn't make it to their final camp the final camp which was in Perth I had to relocate for two weeks for that I had to go to Darwin for two weeks because they weren't accepting people from oh my gosh oh my so goodness me me and another teammate that's based here in Queensland we got a phone call like Monday afternoon they're like yeah we want to fly you to Darwin on Wednesday morning <laughs> like, great here we go here's the resilience <laughs> Like, yeah, I can totally take 18 days out of my life. Like, this is fine. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope that although potentially chaotic or busy, that 2022 is very fulfilling for you. And, yeah, thank you thank so you. much for coming on and joining me. And, you know, you're going to be the first one for, for season three. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's been such a pleasure to interview you and, you know, hear your journey and what you've learned from it. I really love the pity party. I'm going to take that on to, <laughs> to the next uh, little thing that needs me to bounce back. I'll have a pity party yeah. first. <laughs> pity parties are the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Hannah. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time. <laughs>